right. Well, we're uh, continuing on with our study of the Minor Prophets. This week we're doing Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah's name means the Lord hides. Um, there's some, some interesting uh, questions about why his parents named him that or what that meant, what it, you know, what it refers to. Uh, one possibility is that it might have been the case that his parents actually hid him as uh, an infant or as a child if he were born during the reigns of uh, Messiah or Ammon. Manasseh. Manasseh, I'm sorry. Would I say Messiah? Yeah, <laughs> definitely not the Messiah. Not the Messiah. Manasseh, <laughs> uh, who, was a, who was a really bad king. Terrible. Uh, and they were engaging in uh, child sacrifice uh, during much of his reign. So some scholars think that maybe, uh, maybe his parents hid him. Well, nevertheless, his name means the Lord hides. Uh, his lineage, uh, we were given an interesting description of him in verse one, where they lay out sort of his, his father and his grandfather and his great grandfather. And, uh, one of the, one of the people going back is, is the name is by the name of Hezekiah. And so there's some speculation that maybe he came from, uh, the Royal line. So he, he might've been related to, uh, Josiah. And of course, we'll talk about this in just a moment, but his oracles are given during, uh, during the reign of Josiah, who uh, maybe Zephaniah had access to because he was a distant cousin of some sort or had access to the court. Uh, so it's just a possibility. We don't know for sure, though. So we're told that uh, his, uh, his Prophecies or his oracles were given during the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, who was king of Judah. And that's kind of a peculiar way to describe Josiah. And so it seems that maybe uh, it's, it's said this way because Zephaniah's oracles are given early on in Josiah's reign. Now, Josiah, as you see on the, on the screen there, and you might remember this from uh, your reading of uh, Kings or Chronicles, Josiah took the throne when he was eight years old. Yeah, people are reading Chronicles, Don. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so he took the throne. <laughs> he, he ascended to the throne when he was eight years old, which means, uh, obviously, he wouldn't have actually ruled for at least uh, five or six years until he was 13 and had had his bar mitzvah and recognized as an adult. Um, uh, so again, maybe, maybe uh, this, these oracles of Zephaniah had an impact on Josiah's later reign because Josiah uh, does not follow in his father's and his grandfather's footsteps. Whereas uh, Manasseh and Ammon uh, were, um, allowing pagan worship in, in their days, even uh, child sacrifice, following Baal, following Molech. Uh, instead, under Josiah, we see uh, something of a revival of uh, the worship of the Lord and the tearing down, ultimately the tearing down of uh, the Asherah poles and statues to uh, Baal, a cleansing of the temple, and the like. And I think Stefano is going to talk a little bit more about that. I've, I've given you some, uh, some sort of hallmarks during Josiah's life, how that came about, because it was a process of cleansing of Israel. Another thing we wanted to quickly mention about Josiah, and maybe Stefano will elaborate on this, 
is that uh, not only is there a religious revival during Josiah's uh, lifetime, but that religious revival takes on political overtones in terms of responding or rebelling against Assyria. Uh, you see there on your on the slide, the fall of Nineveh takes place also during Josiah's reign. So his reign is from 640, 641 to 610 or 609 BC. So Nineveh falls and 609 is actually the, the final nail in the coffin of the Assyrian kingdom uh, when uh, Assyria is finally defeated and uh, all of their fortified cities are taken by the Babylonian and Mede uh, uh, forces. Yeah. Um, also, Josiah expands the, the size of his kingdom in Judah to incorporate some of the northern kingdom and also some of the other kingdoms surrounding them. So if you were to read Chronicles, um, specifically Second Chronicles is where the reign of Josiah is treated. Um, you would see that as he is um, cleansing the land of um, Baal images and Asherah poles and, and things like that, just, just chopping them down and burning the altars, um, you notice that he starts to move into the north. He doesn't just stay in Judah, but he, he moves north in the land. And in 2 Chronicles 34, 34, 2 Chronicles 34 and 35 is where the reign of uh, Josiah is treated. And in 34 verses 6 and 7, we see that he is moving north even into the territories of Manasseh and Ephraim. And then he goes south into Simeon and north all the way up to uh, Naphtali. So the area of Naphtali is actually around Galilee. So that's, that's quite far north. Um, and so uh, I think that this might be a good time to ask ourselves what exactly was happening in the northern uh, territories of, um, of Israel. Um, after the fall of Samaria, what happened to the northern tribes? Um, and I don't think that they came to America. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's a reference to Mormonism. If you, if you're wondering, if you know. no. All right. so um, so if we were to take, let's say, a 100 year time span between 722 to like the six, you know, 622 uh, roughly, um, what happened in the north? So after the fall of Samaria, 722 or 21. Um, the, the folks of that city uh, and the other northern tribes were deported to um, by Assyria. Uh, some went to Assyria and some were spread out. They were, uh, they were spread out all over, uh, scattered all over Assyrian territory. Uh, a lot of them in the cities of the Medes. Um, others from Judah, I mean, others from Israel fled to Judah for protection. So they fled south. Um, and uh, what happened in that area that was vacated by the, the 10 tribes of the north is that Assyria brought in a whole bunch of other nations, groups from other nations that they had captured that were, that were under their rule uh, from Babylon and from a number of other places. They brought in pagan groups who brought with them their own gods. And um, there's an interesting story in 2 Kings 17, which I'll let you read on your own. Uh, but basically what happened was that um, the people of the land felt like uh, the God of the land, who is Yahweh, uh, was upset with them because they didn't know how to worship him properly. And so they asked the Assyrian king to send them a priest from the Israelites 
um, to teach them the worship of Yahweh. And so the Assyrian king did send back um, a priest from the deportees to live at Bethel and to teach the worship of Yahweh. And so in 2 Kings 17, it says clearly that what was happening was that each nation worshiped its own gods, plus it mixed in the worship of Yahweh. So some of them were worshiping in ways that we've seen um, condemned um, in, uh, by the prophets and condemned in other prophetic books. So that's what was happening um, for about 100 years after the North was, uh, was exiled. So as Josiah then in the 620s is uh, cleansing the land and he's, he's going north, um, as they're going from tribe to tribe, an offering is being taken up for repairing the temple. And we see this from 2 Chronicles 34, 9 to 11. So uh, offerings came from Manasseh, from Ephraim, and it says the entire remnant of Israel. Uh, also offerings from Benjamin and, of course, from Judah for repairing the temple and also other buildings that it says were destroyed by the kings of Judah. So as the temple is being repaired, a scroll of the law was found and brought to the king. Um, is this the book of Deuteronomy? Possibly. Um, is it a, a scroll of the entire Pentateuch? Possibly. Um, we're, we're not exactly sure. But uh, when the king saw it and he heard it, he, he tore his clothes because he knew, he realized how far from the covenant uh, the people had fallen. And he asked for a prophetic consultation. And so he sent messengers to a prophet in Jerusalem, in this case, a prophetess named Huldah. And she confirmed that God's punishment was coming, just as the covenant curses had promised um, exile because of covenant breaking. And she confirmed that um, these threats would be fulfilled, but because Josiah had repented, um, these threats would not be fulfilled in Josiah's lifetime. So this is uh, 2 Chronicles 34, 22 to 28. So Josiah, as a reforming king, ordered all of Israel to return to the covenant, uh, to covenant obedience. Um, he read the whole scroll before all the elders of the people, and they had a covenant renewal ceremony. And then Josiah celebrated a Passover, a true Passover. And in Chronicles, it says that um, it was a, a Passover exactly as required in the scripture. Um, also was organized by David and Solomon in their day. And, and the chronicler says that not since the days of Samuel had the Passover been celebrated this well, this accurately. So Josiah tried to be to the letter. He was very careful to observe um, the, the uh, way the Passover should be celebrated. Now, before him, his um, uh, great-grandfather, Hezekiah, had also celebrated the Passover, but it wasn't able to be accurate for uh, reasons which um, I will let you read in 2 Chronicles 30. But um, in any case, Josiah is trying to restore the people to uh, proper faith in God, and he takes all these measures. And I, I think it's important to note that he's trying to include the north, um, the northern territories, uh, together with Judah. And so what this kind of overview does, for me anyway, is it kind of fills in the blank of what happened um, up north in Israel and what the relationship of the, um, the south was with these, uh, uh, these people who were in the northern territories. Um, and it also helps me to answer the question, how did the book of the law possibly get lost 
right in the temple? And the answer, of course, that you've seen is that um, uh, all sorts of um, gods and deities from the ruling nations were forced upon their tributary nations. And so the gods of Assyria and um, other nations that oppressed Israel were forced to be uh, in their temples and at their worship places. And so the word of God and the covenant of God was just edged out until it was lost. So the, so the context, so, so let's uh, sort of take a step back for a moment then. So the context of Zephaniah's prophecy probably comes at the front end of Josiah's reign, um, possibly after he's been bar mitzvah, but before he begins really these reforms, because a lot of the prophecy reads like judgment on Judah and warning type passages that obviously Josiah took to heart uh, or probably took to heart if it was early in his reign, and and then implemented and and therefore saved Judah for at least for a time. Unfortunately, his uh, his uh, followers, the people who followed him, did not uh, did not continue with that practice. Okay, so um, so that was all verse one. <laughs> so uh, now we're in we're into chapter uh, chapter one, and uh, it's interesting because it. It begins with uh, language that describes some kind of a judgment upon the whole earth that that sounds similar, uh, not in not in form but in scope to to the judgment of Noah's flood. So uh, so it has this language of completely removing everything from the face of the earth. Uh, I'll remove man and beast, all the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea. I mean that's universal in scope. So an interesting question comes up because following after uh, verse 3, the rest of it is going to be a judgment on the nation of Judah, a, pr a pronouncement of judgment on Judah. So the question uh, that, that comes up is, do verses 2 and 3 mean then that there is going to be this worldwide cataclysmic judgment, or is it uh, sort of an exaggerated description of a localized destruction to drive home the point stronger? Um, well, some some scholars have thought it's hyperbolic or it's that exaggerated description of a localized judgment, but it seems like it comes back around to this cosmic uh, judgment uh, later in verse 18, and it's going to come back again in chapter 3. So I think uh, that it is actually talking about a larger uh, larger judgment, and we'll see that in just a, just a moment. Um, <clears throat> So in um, in verses four through uh, thirteen, and even following on, we could say all the way to verse eighteen. We what we see is an oracle of judgment upon Judah. Um, so the primary focus in verses four through six is on the priestly class, uh, and in part, sometimes it seems like he's talking about the like priests of Baal, similar to what what uh, the, those who worked in Jezebel and Ahab's court um, in the north, but at other times, like in verse four, for example, uh, but also other times it seems like it's talking about Levites who have uh, synchronized or mixed the true worship 
of the Lord with pagan worship practices. Uh, and so in verses five and six, it reads kind of that way. I don't think it makes much difference though. And I don't think Zephaniah made that these, these finer distinctions because both existed in the days of Manasseh and in the days of Ammon, his father and grandfather. You had both pagan priests and you had other pe people who, who sort of spoke of worshiping the Lord, but mixed it with pagan practices. All right. So um, as, uh, as judgment on Judah is uh, being proclaimed by Zephaniah, he, um, he talks about, uh, he speaks against idolatry. Um, he talks about worship on the rooftops. I don't know if that stood out to you, but you know, people's rooftops were not like ours. Uh, they were actually flat. And if you were going to burn something like some, you know, offer some sort of incense or sacrifice or something like that, uh, you could do it up on the on the roof of your house, and the smoke wouldn't uh, wouldn't fill your house. This talk about the heavenly host, um, uh, the, or the starry host, or something like that, uh, that refers to maybe um, astral deities or something like that. This is also mentioned in uh, in Jeremiah. And what's interesting too in, in Jeremiah, who's um, uh, probably a, a contemporary here. Um, there was idolatry going on in individual households. Like if you can practice it on the roof of your house, that's the individual household. And so you can see this um, idolatry where, where uh, maybe you're offering incense to the gods or um, uh, you're offering some sort of a food sacrifice, a burnt, you know, burnt sacrifice or something like that. It's idolatry that's happening in individual households spread out through Judah. And so there, it, it's not just that idolatry is centered at the temple, but it has permeated the nation completely at a, um, at, at a household level, at a domestic level. And um, that, that, just, uh, that, that just makes the idolatry sort of complete. <laughs> um, also, he talks about people who are loyal to Yahweh and to other gods, right? So here it mentions um, Milcom or, or Molech. Uh, this is the god of the Ammonites. They worship through um, child sacrifice. It's also related to, John mentioned Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, so this Molech is also kind of related to a deity that was popular with the Phoenicians as well, um, with Tyre and with Sidon. So like the area where Jezebel came from, he was called Baal Melkart and probably was the equivalent of Molech. And so also there is uh, child sacrifice going on in the worship of, uh, of, of that deity as well. So um, if we were to do kind of a sweep then through the, through the chapter, um, as we start with like verse seven, um, be silent in the presence of the Lord God. This comes up in Amos a couple of times too. Remember like, hush, be silent. It's the same word that comes, uh, comes across here, you know, because the, the presence of the Lord that's fearful um, is, uh, is upon us. And it gets very ominous. It says the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Well, who are the guests at the sacrifice? It emerges that the guests are the sacrifice. Uh, and so who are these people? Well, uh, the officials, the princes, they're sellouts to foreign worship and uh, pagan customs like Philistine customs. Um, John will talk a bit about that a little later. Um, there, is, there will be an outcry, he says uh, in verse 10, uh, from the fish gate and down to the hollow. So from the north of the city to the south of the city of Jerusalem, 
Okay, so all the way through the city, and then God is going to even do like a a, a, a fine-tooth comb uh, sweep through the city with lamps. He's going to carefully look for people who are spiritually complacent, people who do not care about true worship, and they will receive the punishment of the covenant curses. Okay. Um, well, so I thought we should at least mention a few of these things that uh, that are raised as those who will be judged, you know, those who are who are being prepared for sacrifice. <laughs> and uh, in verse eight, it said, it says, those who are clothed in foreign attire, this is rather curious, you might say, well, what's wrong with wearing like, you know, foreign clothes, if that's what you like? Um, well, I think, I think it has two meanings, then one, it's, it's a criticism of those in leadership in, uh, in Judah, who have failed to observe Torah regulations on clothing that were meant to set Israel apart from her neighbors. You might recall in the Old Testament, there were things like you can't weave certain kinds of uh, cloth together and, and uh, you have to wear certain items of clothing. And these are meant to, to set Israel apart. Also, second, though, it probably also has specific types of foreign clothes in mind, clothes that have religious uh, overton overtones or significance. So if you think about like translating that to today, um, I was thinking about Kevin uh, when I read this, because oftentimes people who go as foreign missionaries, one of the things our missionaries do is they'll adopt the clothing and some of the style of the, uh, the people they seek to reach in an effort to incarnate Paul's uh, principle of becoming all things to all people, right? Um, so they'll uh, adopt some of the clothing of, of, the, of the culture of the people, but they, they, won't, uh, they won't wear clothing or dress that could be seen as uh, referring to, that could lead to religious confusion, right? So a Christian, Christian missionary uh, would not adopt, for example, the distinctive clothing of a Tibetan monk uh, in order to let the local people know that he's a religious leader, uh, because that would lead to confusion about who he is, about what we teach, and about the gospel. And so I think that's what, uh, that's what Zeph and I was talking about here as well. Uh, secondly, in verse 9, he says he's going to punish those who leap over the threshold. Uh, this was a custom that uh, developed among the Philistines uh, after they captured the Ark of the Covenant and placed it in uh, the Temple of Dagon, their god. And um, what were we going to say? Yeah, at, at Ashdod. At Ashdod. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, they placed the Ark of the Covenant there in front of the statue, and uh, the next morning the statue had fallen over. And then they set it up, and again the next day the statue fell over and the head had been cut off. And they interpreted that as um, the Lord God, Yahweh, had defeated their God, and he had fallen over onto the threshold of their temple. And so out of respect for their God Dagon, they would step over, hop over the threshold as they entered the temple, and this became a custom. So it's a pagan custom. Um, we're going to say something else? Okay. Um, in verse 12, this is an interesting phrase, kind of cuts to the heart for, for even us today. He's, he calls out those who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. It's kind of like they're apathetic. They don't care about what God's going to do. Whatever's going to be is going to be. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if we pray. It doesn't matter if we commit this to the Lord because God's just not going to do anything good or bad. So people who, who sort of don't care, who don't have a concern about spiritual things. 
And then look at verse 13. It says, uh, uh, their house is desolate, yet they will build houses but not inhabit them, and they will plant vineyards but not drink their wine. This is uh, language right out of uh, covenant promises offered, about the covenant promise offered to Israel as they get ready to enter the promised land. God promised them houses you will not build, and vineyards you did not plant, and cisterns you did not dig. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 6.11. It's also in Joshua 24.13. And many of the prophets pick up on these covenant promises and turn them on the people. Now you will uh, build houses, but you won't live in them. In other words, it's almost like someone else will inhabit them, and you'll plant vineyards and not drink from them. So this is part of the covenant curse. Well, all of this is uh, speaking of the, uh, the invasion. Uh, the invasion of Judah by Babylon. Ultimately, that's going to, uh, Jerusalem will fall in 586, uh, not under Josiah, but under Zedekiah much later. But nevertheless, the warning is already here. Babylon and the, the Neo-Babylonian uh, Empire is rising up uh, and challenging Assyria's uh, hegemony of the region and their power. And, uh, and, and so this prophecy speaks of Babylon, even though we're not told that specifically, uh, that's what we know it's talking about. And the imagery is interesting here. Uh, the, the language of the day of the Lord then uh, sounds very much like combat, right? We see the warriors are crying out. It makes me think of PTSD. They're uh, a disastrous defeat. They're walking around in a daze. They're in shock. Uh, they've seen many slaughtered. Their blood and their flesh is going to function like fertilizer for the land. It's, uh, there's so many dead. Um, yeah. So nevertheless, that's in the, in the relatively near future, right? That's a warning for Josiah, and it's going to be fulfilled in, uh, as Holder said, in the, days, uh, in, the, uh, in the days following his death. Um, but also in verse 18, we have this broader, uh, broader description of judgment on the earth, a judgment described as taking place by fire, the fire of God's jealousy. And it's, not, it's probably not just uh, metaphorical language. It, it's probably literal fires we'll see later in chapter 3 as well. So what do we see here? Let me just say this here in chapter 1, and we'll, pick, we'll, we'll say this again when we get to chapter 3. But there's a relationship then between the, the impending fall of Judah by conquest of, a, of an invading army, Babylon, but also a eschatological, that's a good seminary term, a $5 term. It just means the, the end of days or the final judgment of God on sinful humanity. And that relationship is this. Basically, Judah serves as a microcosm or as a forerunner or an example, what scholars call a type of all sinful humanity throughout the earth. And the, and the mini judgment by Babylon, where they burn the temple down, right? So there's a judgment by fire there. That is like uh, the, the judgment of God at the end of time on the whole earth, on all of humanity in mini, right? It's like a mini version of that. 
Um, so this does, this uh, description of the Day of the Lord, classic, classic Day of the Lord language. It's apocalyptic, cataclysmic, and seems like it's universal in scope. So as John says, it goes beyond just Jerusalem. So in chapter two, then he uh, starts laying out the day of the Lord. You're going to talk about it. Well, um, it's it's also a chance for repentance. It's a call to repentance. Um, again, it shows, you know, God's um, God's compassion, God's willingness to forgive uh, if there is repentance. Um, there might be a, a tiny chance of escape uh, if, in looking at verse three. Um, if you humble yourself, if you seek the Lord, um, mine says, uh, if you carry out what he commands, but what it says literally is, um, if you have upheld his justice or his, his mishpat, the same word that we've seen in Amos, if you seek righteousness, if you seek humility, that maybe you may be hidden in the day of anger. So we'll see that in Joel. Uh, we have seen that in Joel, in Nahum. Um, it's in Micah and in Amos as well. The, the characteristics of the faithful that have to do with justice, righteousness, humility, and seeking the Lord. So there's an offer of grace even to the pagan nations here if they'll turn to the Lord. But in addition, of course, is uh, is um, a, a pronouncement of judgment on these nations, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, uh, the Ethiopians or Cushites. And then, uh, and then we have an extended description of the fall of Nineveh again with Assyria uh, in 13 through 18. It's similar to Nahum with beasts inhabiting the city grounds. Um, but what's also interesting, as he's going through these nations, uh, Zach, Zephaniah also highlights God's covenant promises to Israel uh, through Abraham, right? So the land and the homes of the Philistines will be given to Judah. Um, uh, while Moab and Ammon will be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, their homes or their land will be given to Judah as well. All right, so we move to chapter 3 then. And what's interesting is at the end of chapter two, you have this description of the destruction of Nineveh, right? The terrible city. And chapter three begins with, woe to her who is a rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. Now you might think, oh, well, that's still talking about Nineveh. The, the, but, but it doesn't seem like it is talking about Nineveh. It does seem to be talking about Jerusalem for, um, for a number of reasons. In verse two of chapter three, he says, she, the tyrannical city, did not draw near to her God, to her God. Sounds like Jerusalem there. In verse 4, prophets and priests profaned the sanctuary. The only sanctuary that any prophet would be concerned about being profaned is the temple itself, which again is in Jerusalem. In verse 5, the Lord is righteous within her. Again, Jerusalem. And then in, in uh, verse 7, her dwelling uh, will not be cut off or uh, also it says, um, yeah, you will receive me, accept instruction. So, uh, so her dwelling will not be cut off. So again, sounds like Jerusalem. So all of this starting in verse one then becomes a judgment upon Judah at the front end. So what is Judah like? Well, unfortunately, it's hard to tell a difference between Judah and Assyria that we had just been, uh, reading about, um, Judah is described as rebellious, defiled, oppressive, disobedient, far 
from God, rejecting God. Her leaders, uh, the princes and the judges are rapacious. They're like bears, like wolves. The prophets and the religious folks are treacherous and profane. So um, although Judah uh, had been protected by God, had been instructed by God, had been chosen by God, God set his name in the sanctuary, but still they became corrupt and they threw off God's covenant. And so therefore they are to be judged now along with all the other nations. So in verse eight, uh, seven and eight, right? He says, they, the people desired, they were eager to sin. They were excited about sinning. And this is why God is going to pour out his judgment on them. And look at verse eight, the second part of verse eight. He says, all the earth, uh, all the earth will be devoured by f- the fire of my zeal. Or you could say by fire through my zeal would be uh, just as accurate translation. So again, you have this language of fire because of humanity's sin. Um, uh, but so it's, it's, it seems like a universal judgment by fire. But then in verses 9 through 13, we have a return turn of God's people. Now, this is interesting. Again, if it's been a universe, on the one hand, we have judgment upon Judah, but it's a microcosm of a larger judgment of God uh, upon the nation. So a movement between uh, the uh, the 6th century BC and the end of the age, uh, still yet future for us. Um, we've seen this on the judgment. Now, what about the return? Well, the return of God's people could refer to the, re- the return of the Jewish exiles under, for example, Cyrus uh, uh, later, or it could also refer to the gathering of all peoples to worship the Lord, which would be a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and also fulfillment of some of Isaiah's prophecies that talk about all the peoples of the earth coming to the mountain of the Lord to worship at the end of the age. And, uh, and it seems like this is what he's talking about. For example, in verse 9, he says he's going to give purified lips, uh, allowing uh, all people. I think I have this on the next slide. Oh, no. Okay. Purified lips given by God, which would, enables all people, all men, to call on the Lord. And it's, and it's uh, elicited by a movement of the Spirit. This sounds a lot like New Covenant language here. Um, uh, yeah. Um, also in, in verse uh, 12 and 13, uh, it says, uh, it says that uh, I will leave among you a humble and lowly people. Uh, you will, there'll be no one to make you tremble in the land, which seems to refer to Israel and to their physical security, right? In verse 13, they'll be in the land and they'll be secure in the land. But it also speaks of spiritual purity. Uh, not military might as the key to national security. Things like uh, they will tell no lies. There'll no deceitful tongue will be found in their mouths. They will feed and, and then they will feed and lie down. So it's spiritual maturity is the key to success and to, uh, and to physical security. And so this reference to spiritual maturity may be an indicator that that there's a dual meaning here, uh, a restoration, not just for Israel or not just a, a return of the Jews who were taken into exile or who were going to be taken into exile in the Babylon because it's still future yet for even Zephaniah at this point, but also uh, a return, a return to the Lord of people across the earth 
for there's there will still be a remnant, even though God is going to, uh, in verse one or verse two, wipe out all humanity from the earth, wipe out everything. Nevertheless, uh, he will um, uh, he will re restore some as well. So this is the idea of the remnant uh, coming back. It'll be a purified remnant. And the things that they had been condemned for um, in the prior chapters about pride and arrogance and haughtiness, those things will be reversed. So God's purified people will, uh, will come back to uh, worship him properly. And um, I want to say a couple of things about verses um, 14 through 17, because I know... Oh, is it there? Go ahead. Because, because I know that this is probably the part of Zephaniah that you might know the best. And uh, it might even be some people's favorite verse here, um, specifically verse 17. So um, I just want to treat kind of this little section, verses 14 to 17, because this is a little bit kind of set off, isn't it? Kind of like a, a, a song, like a, a psalm of joy, uh, a, a song of praise, a hymn exalting God's rulership in Israel, uh, singing about God as the true king, um, who finally, together with his purified people, can be joined together in proper uh, a proper covenant relationship of love. And um, uh, this section has a little bit of a thematic, remember when John talked about a chiasm, that's like a pattern where, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you have what <laughs> it's not on our sorry i didn't tell john this because anyway so anyway if you if you look in verse 14 you see sing daughter of zion and then um in 17 the very last word there in the hebrew is singing that that god will be singing uh, over them. So it's the same word that kind of uh, unites um, verse 14 and verse 17. So in between there, we've got the singing daughter of Zion, and then at the end, the singing uh, warrior God. Um, next, um, the Lord has removed punishment. The Lord has removed their enemy. And um, at the bottom, the Lord is a warrior who saves. He's their hero. He's their mighty one. Uh, the third point we have, um, the Lord is the king of Israel, Yahweh in your midst. And then the parallel is that the king of Israel is among you. And then in the very center, the message is, you know, in light of all the stuff we've been talking about regarding the day of the Lord, that's very scary. It says, do not fear, do not fear. Okay. That's the central part of this uh, chiasm and verse 17 says literally he will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet you with his love aha he will rejoice over you with singing and so this is a picture of a warrior king who exults not just in his military accomplishments or his his success in battle but he exults in the loving covenant unity between himself and his people and so of this is the God who leads and saves and protects and loves and rejoices in and over us. This is our covenant God. Conclusion. So first uh, thing to remember, Zephaniah's oracles may have spurred Josiah's reforms, right? They were probably given early on in his, uh, in his reign, uh, maybe even before he took over the reigns of uh, of the, the the nation, but certainly uh, early on, and could have uh, inspired 
Josiah to, to turn back to the Lord and to begin seeking the Lord as he did at age 16. Um, Zephaniah warns of the judgment of God on both Judah and neighboring kingdoms, and that judgment is going to come in the form of a military invasion. And we know it's the Babylonian army, and probably they did as well at the time. Um, of course, the important concept, uh, one of the most important concepts in Zephaniah is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord as uh, a day of judgment, but also a day of uh, offer of restoration as well. Um, so it's a day of judgment upon Judah, but also a judgment upon humanity at the end. And it's a judgment by fire. Interestingly, then, the creation, the creation suffers uh, because of humanity's sin. Uh, just as the creation will be redeemed when humanity is redeemed. That's in Romans 8, for example. But in, in Zephaniah, it's going to be a judgment upon the earth by fire. Again, in verse uh, 18 of chapter 1 and in verse 8 of chapter 3. And I wanted to read from Second Peter just to uh, see this from Second Peter uh, verse 10 and following. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? And then in verse 13, he says, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then he says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Um, so, again, an encouragement. What do we get out of Zephaniah? Well, one of the things we get out of Zephaniah is encouragement to be found faithful as well as we look forward to the return of Christ and we look forward to God's uh, reconciliation of all things. That's going to include judgment upon uh, a godless earth, um, which is pressed to, of course, evangelism and sharing the gospel, but also it, we can look forward to God's restoration and grace for those, right? Grace and restoration for those who have faith and worship with a pure heart.